Welcome to the Gritty Leaders Club, a podcast asking the hard questions about leadership. Each episode explores a tension or paradox of leadership, asking how founders, entrepreneurs and scale-up CEOs decide which way to turn. My name is Ben Wales. And I'm Ian Windle. Joining the two of us, we'll have guests, founders and leaders of successful businesses, sharing their stories, as well as authors, keynote speakers and experts digging into the rough and the smooth of leading. If you like what you hear, subscribe and join the club. Tell us your opinion, ask a question or introduce a guest. We'd love to hear from you. Welcome to episode four of the Gritty Leaders Club. And this episode is entitled Peacetime CEO, Wartime CEO. And Ben will be getting onto in a minute what that is and the article that is underpinning our discussions this week on the podcast. But before we get into that, the usual start is what's caught your eye. So Ben, what's caught your eye this time? Hi, Ian. Formula One. It seems to me that Formula One has done a great job of finding a way through pandemic. They've restarted, they've kept the show on the road, and I think they've done a lot more than that. Thinking about it from the point of view of the people at the top of Formula One groups, so Chase Carey, Ross Braun, they've done a great job. The championship was due to start in March and would have been contested over 22 Grand Prix. And of course, everything was stopped. The start of the season was postponed until July and there was a point when I think 10 or more Grand Prix had been cancelled and there was a prospect of of a very short season. And when we remember that Formula One is funded by, by sponsorship and sponsorship money flows all the way through to the teams, a short season becomes you know, a massive problem because cancelled races don't produce sponsorship revenue. And there could easily have been a situation where, you know, even the major teams became uh, became bankrupt. And of course, you know, everything relies on the fan base. So Formula One had a big problem on its hands, how to rework the season with a good number of races in the calendar, make it competitive and entertaining for, for fans and sponsors and practical and safe during the risk and uncertainty of pandemic. They've done a good job. The calendar has been reinvented with, for the first time, as far as I know, back-to-back races on consecutive weekends at some tracks, which from a, from a fan point of view, a spectator point of view, has added something brand new and exciting. There's new circuits this weekend, Mugello, which is it's spectacular. Formula One's approach to COVID has been consistent, and I think it's set a great example for for distancing and taking effective precaution whilst allowing competition at the highest levels in a high logistics operation. And I'm sure we've got listeners who lead manufacturing businesses, for example, and they'll recognise how they needed to quickly learn to keep operating uh, with COVID around them. And the broadcasters, they too have been reinventing. Uh, I often watch on Channel 4 here in the UK And for the first races, the broadcast team was not at the circuit. We had David Coulthard and Billy Monger at the Silverstone Experience, standing metres apart from each other with a Formula One car between them. 
and it was really effective. So I've been impressed with the the scale of reinvention and reworking that was needed. And you know, Formula One, in my opinion, is is even better now. And it makes me think: if I were running a business right now, I'd be thinking and asking, "Hey, which parts of the business can we reinvent?" And as we do that, let's do more than keep the show on the road. What could be better than before? How can we be better? So yeah, I've really enjoyed Formula One and I do remember that there's a lot of money in the sport. So in many ways, they have resources available to them that others won't have. And still, I think there's a clear piece of good thinking at the top of Formula One that's enabled them to find a way forward that yes, it works for fans and spectators, but also sponsors and teams. And it's made Formula One stronger It will get Formula One through this year and into next year in a good position. Ian, how about you? What's caught your interest? Yeah, I've enjoyed seeing Formula One come back and there's some really good points you make there. Well, I suppose, interesting, I'm going to start with my kitchen. So my wife, Jacqueline, decided we needed more work surface and she decided she wanted a centre unit. And we haven't quite got the room to get a large centre unit in there and... Some friends of ours said, why don't you try Ikea? Because that's where they got theirs from. So but if anyone knows anything about Ikea, it's not the most customer-focused business. And quite deliberately, if you look at their strategy, their competitive advantage will all be about um, operational efficiency. And so anyway, the interesting thing was, you know, if you go to Ikea, you, you, you can get served, of course, but they're not all over you. You have to look for them. Anyway, we, we went online. We looked at... Um, whether we could do this, we found the right department and we had a Zoom call with this lady who spent as long as we wanted going through different options and so on. And we designed a, a sensor unit and then we went to Ikea and we finished off the whole process and we could have anything from granite worktops to laminate worktops and so on. It was a really interesting experience and it got me thinking, just because your strategy is all about operational efficiency doesn't mean you can't deliver good customer service where required. And it got me reflecting on another company that doesn't have customer experience at the heart of its business, Apple, which of course is product-led business. But if you go into an Apple store and you go up to the Genius Bar, you'll get incredible customer service. And indeed, with a two-year warranty on all their products, if you call them up, they'll spend, as I know, to my uh, delight, you know, three, four hours on the phone to you. So it's interesting going back to the businesses we run and we, we, we focus on the things that will make us different, that will really guide us into the future. But it doesn't mean that when required and in parts of our business, we shouldn't be exceptional at things that we're not putting at the, the forefront of our strategy. Interesting. So IKEA has surprised you. As I listen, you've reminded me there's an excellent Harvard Business Review article called Customer Intimacy and Other Value Disciplines. It's written by Michael Treacy and Fred Wiersmer, and it's about the three paths that ultra-successful companies like IKEA have taken to market leadership. You mentioned two of the three, operational excellence, that's IKEA, and product innovation, that's Apple. And the third is customer intimacy. And the example in the article 
is the American firm Home Depot, whose staff will spend however much time is required with the customer to figure out the answer to his or her DIY or home repair problem. A UK company I put in the customer intimacy category might be John Lewis. World-beating businesses excel, they're world-class, in fact, world leaders, in one of these three ways, operational excellence, product innovation, or customer intimacy. And, and this is important, the HBR article also says it's not enough to be world-class in a chosen discipline. You also have to meet the industry standard in the other two. And it sounds like what you've seen is that IKEA, which we know to be a world-class operational excellence business that really sets a global standard, is also industry standard in customer intimacy and perhaps better than industry standard in the parts of their offering that depend on it. Yeah, it was it was it was fantastic, and it was lovely because it just showed me another side of an organisation which I've always admired. I think uh, you know, having like you, having worked for a Swedish business in the past, you get close to looking at companies like IKEA, and I think um, they're you know terif- terrific business. It's a great question for a founder or CEO or leadership team to explore. Do we choose to be an operational excellence business or customer intimacy or product innovation? And are we industry standard in the other two? Sometimes it can it can take a bit of working out. So on to today's topic, we're here to talk about Peacetime CEO, Wartime CEO, which is a blog article by Ben Horowitz. Horowitz is co-founder of a venture capital firm And before that, he began his career as an engineer at Silicon Graphics, moved to Netscape, uh, spent time at AOL after they acquired Netscape. Then he co-founded a business that eventually was sold to Hewlett Packard. In his blog, Peacetime CEO, Wartime CEO, Horowitz talks about the different leadership needed in peacetime, those times when a company has a large advantage versus its competition in its core markets, and its market is growing. And wartime, when a company is fending off an imminent existential threat, which could be from competition, change in the economy or market, or I guess, as we've seen this year, an unexpected event like pandemic. The part of Horowitz's blog I particularly like is its second half, which is a series of provocations comparing peacetime CEOs and wartime CEOs. There's about 20. And to give us a flavor, here's here's four of them. Peacetime CEO trains her employees to ensure satisfaction and career development. Wartime CEO trains her employees so they don't get their ass shot off in battle. Peacetime CEO has rules like we're going to exit all the businesses where we're not number one or number two. Wartime CEO often has no businesses that are number one or number two and therefore does not have the luxury of following that rule. Or Peacetime CEO always has a contingency plan. Wartime CEO knows that sometimes you've got to roll a hard six. One more. Peacetime CEO builds scalable, high-volume recruiting machines. Wartime CEO does that 
but also builds HR organizations that can execute layoffs. These really get my attention and they make me think. But before we start digging into it, what's your reaction, Ian, having having just read the blog? Um, uh, it's interesting because I had a, a bit of an emotional reaction to it in a way. I, I thought, uh, you know, I remember a, a, a marketing expert telling me when I set up my own business and started writing blogs years ago, he said, always take a stance. Always take a stance. Have a point of view. Don't sit on the fence. You know, have a provocative title and then really get into it. And uh, And I guess that's what this author has done because the fact that we're discussing it Means that they've they've uh, you know pressed a button and um, it it makes you look at this article and say well is that true is 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 that the way people are supposed to act so I had quite a you know an emotional uh, reaction to it which is a good thing it just because it got me thinking about it yeah yeah and Ian which which were you you've been in yeah. the CEO role which were you well. This is at the heart of, 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 do you believe, you know, this article is telling the truth, really? <laughs> I, I would say I was neither one, one or the other. Um, were times I was running my business from 97 through to 2006. I was running the UK uh, office of a, of a Swedish global business. And everything got better and better and better from 97 up to pretty much September the 11th, 2001. And I was in Boston when the Twin Towers were hit. And the next three years were really, really hard in the business. The next year was really, really particularly hard. Um, we pretty much closed our US business. It just fell apart overnight. And so there were times during, I guess the summary is, there are times during that nine years where I had to switch the way I led. And I had to sometimes take very tough decisions. I remember laying off a load of people, changing tack, taking a different strategy, getting different resources in the business, restructuring the business doing all sorts of things, which I never would have foreseen, you know, six months, a year earlier before 9-11 happened. So I think I did both is the answer, which left me feeling that I can see where the article is coming from and I can see you can, you can pinpoint high-profile leaders who fit both of these roles. But I've, I bet if you went in there and discussed with probably a lot of them, have you done the, the 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 other one? So if they've been if they've been pigeonholed as a wartime CEO and you went and had a good chat with them, they could probably say, "Well, I can do peacetime stuff too," and vice versa. What about what about you, Ben? What, what what's your take? Well, I guess I was I was a wartime CEO, and not through choice or some leaning in my preferred approach or style, but rather because. You know, I founded and started a consulting team in London, and that was about, so who's our first customer? Who's our second customer? Who's the third? We had to make our mark and attack the market, so wartime. Then once we had our first three customers, who are the next three? Can we go bigger? Can we be more strategic? Can we increase the value we offer and our price point? We were still attacking the market, so really off the two, it was still wartime. And 
as a startup then scale up company we always look for the next challenges and opportunities and when when that team i mentioned and another in the uk came together as part of a, a wider swedish organization and i was asked to take the lead of the combined uk business there were things to fix teams to integrate with each other changes of direction uh, and again challenges and opportunities that were fast approaching and you know as i look back over time there was never really a moment when we got to catch our breath and relax so i'm not sure i agree uh, with you i think it's almost always of the two wartime for sme companies scale up companies and growth companies and it's not because they're being attacked rather that they're always attacking and they need to you know the language as i listen here it's quite testosterone laden and i think that's a problem while we might need aggressive strategies but better to say i think competitive strategies we also need a softer nurturing collaborative learning and enjoyable culture and i think that's perhaps part of what you're talking about ian we need to have periods when we can consolidate recover and and regroup mm, mm. ian you mentioned high profile ceos and and i wonder they change roles it seems every couple of years many of them and it makes me think perhaps at that scale of organization maybe you do need to be more peacetime or wartime and maybe there is a more clear cut fit or lack of fit i know you've studied apple and steve jobs and you mentioned toyota quite a bit another huge organization so what's your take on peacetime wartime in much larger organizations yeah, well it's interesting i'm fascinated by steve jobs i think he was an amazing character and read half a dozen books about him including the walter isaacson biography and uh, i heard a conference in america a speaker talk about jobs and he referred to jobs as jobs version 1 and jobs version 2 when he came back to apple having been sacked the first time and then came back almost as you know the messiah returns when they were in uh, a right dog's dinner the second time and the interesting thing he said uh that when he came back yes he was a different person but he was a and some people would see him as a person who was perhaps even more ruthless because he you know he cut down the number of product streams they had he was uh, very clear about what apple should be doing and they then came out with this amazing succession of 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 world beating products over the over the course of the next sort of 10 years and and he was behind that but one thing that came very clearly was that he wasn't the I'll create an argument for argument's sake that he perhaps was the first time around he 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 took people with him he he created teams around him um we all know Johnny Ive the the, the chief design officer was a great friend of jobs uh, the british uh, guy who's now a sir of course and um you know they 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 created a formidable team and um so job jobs's attention to detail and his ruthlessness of strategy was coupled with somebody who could 
take people with him and create a team who would follow him anywhere. And if you listen to those top people at Jobs, including Tim Cook, who took over when he died, and Tim was the operations director before that, chief of operations, um, they haven't really got a bad word to say about him. And certainly he did inspire this loyalty and this this incredible team. So it is interesting. And I don't think, you know, that one of the things the article does is it sort of, it's written in kind of macho way that sort of says, because I mean, one of the other things that you didn't read out was one I love. It says, peacetime CEO sets big, hairy, audacious goals. Wartime CEO is too busy fighting the enemy to read management books written by consultants who have never managed a fruit stand. And it's rather, it kind of <laughs> makes you feel that it's trying to show that, you know, the, the, the good old wartime CEO is where you need to be. And, yeah, you know, I, I definitely definitely see people at the top of Toyota, very focused people, very strategic. Um, but did they inspire loyalty and uh, get a lot of the, the the teamwork around them? Again, one of Toyota's values, teamwork. And um, yes, they did. And I don't think you can have one without the other. So uh, this isn't quite saying that, but um, I think... Uh, I, I, I rather believe that you don't need to 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 be an extreme CEO, which is this is suggesting in some ways um, to be a successful CEO. Yes, that's what this does for me. These provocations—they're polarizing, and I know that in my own MD role and with many of the the founders, MD CEOs I'm working with, it's it's really useful to think, where do I need to be on the spectrum between peacetime and wartime with any one of these provocations? And and even to step back a bit and think, you know, what are our choices? What are our choices here? Where do I need to be in my, my leadership uh, and my approach right now? Mm. And that's a great question. Mm. It comes back to situational leadership, which I guess is what you're saying, which is, the best leaders realize they have to mix it up a bit. So at certain points you will come in and you will, you will very deliberately, and I do believe leadership at times is, is really about acting. You've got to come in and be somebody that may not be your comfort zone. And in that sense, you've, you, you've got to be, perhaps giving the hard news saying we're going to go in this direction laying off some people that you didn't want to do necessarily it, it, you know it's, it's it's this grittiness we talked about before and then but you then you've got to be able to walk out of that meeting and walk into another one-to-one with somebody and put your arm around their shoulder and say you're a very valued member of staff and come into this meeting with me and i think that's to me those are the outstanding leaders that can have the ability to switch and understand both sides are really important. Yeah, I I think that's great. Um, I agree leadership demands that we're in the moment and that we clear our mind of everything else and we focus on the group that we're with and we know what outcome is needed. We know what leader we need to be to get towards that. But another piece here, which perhaps I get from peacetime, wartime CEO, 
is it's great to be in a position of choice. In fact, we always should be in a position of, of choice. And, and maybe that's something simple I get from this article that we've always got a choice. We've got a choice between peacetime CEO, wartime CEO, different courses of action. And it's a great thing to do with a team, I think, particularly in those moments where we think uh, there's only one way to go. Well, let's stop with our team and say, mm. hey, it looks like we've got one option here. Actually, what are our, our options? What other options can we surface, put on the table, and exercise that that muscle? I think that's a that's a great exercise for a team. And let's get in a position of choice and then decide uh, what leader we need to be. And what about the SMEs you're working with, Ben? Do you do you see do you see SME any of the SMEs then in a sort of peacetime? Does it depend on the industry? Does it depend on the leader? Does it depend on the team? Or, or, or are all the SME leaders you're coming across more or less wartime CEOs because they feel the you know the wind in their face more? It, it's it's it, it's a kind of it's much more entrepreneurial. They've got to be agile. They've got to move quickly and all that all that stuff. Or, or, or do you see that kind of they can balance it a bit more? There are different types. How do you see the SME arena? Well, uh, I said earlier, I think really. SMEs, scale-ups, they are at war, maybe not under attack, but attacking. Um, either way, they're at war. And I think they fit that paradigm, that way of thinking uh, a little bit more than, than peacetime. I think that'd be a bit dangerous for, for, for an SME. But when I look at the, the leaders I'm, I'm working with, Actually, what I see, uh, and in fact, this morning I was talking to a CTO, and he's really clearly a wartime CTO. We we talked about this. In fact, I knew I, you and I would be talking about it this afternoon. I pulled it out in our coaching conversation, and he said, "Yeah, I'm, I, I'm clearly a wartime CTO. Mm. My CEO is peacetime, and that's a great combination." And he, they're, they're a great pairing. You know, one is foil to the other. And depending on what's going on in the business, the leadership of one or the other of them might come to the fore and the other steps back. Uh, and I've seen them doing this dance. And, and this is lovely as well, I think. Let's look at the business and think, who are my peacetime leaders? Who are my wartime leaders? Have I got both around me? Have I got a combination in my and team? And do you, well, so one of the things, just to cut across you, but I think this is where you're going, Ben, is um, the team is really important at the top, as we know. You, you know, you've just talked about a CTO who's wartime. Uh, uh, the CEO might be more of a peacetime in terms of how the article's written. So you've got this lovely, you know, combination who, who can support each other. So when it comes to looking at a top team, are you suggesting the team should be put together according to, you know, psychometric profiling, Belvin team roles, so that you know you've got these different types of people around the table, as well as the different experience and knowledge around the table? Are you saying it's that clear that that's what we need to get? Yes, great point. Actually, it's not where I was going to take it, but let's go there. Absolutely, the team at the top of the organisation, in fact, Teams everywhere in the organization, they've got to be diverse. And that diversity is background, experience, education, ethnicity, culture, gender. 
the more diversity we have in teams, the more resource they have and the better they will consider everything with the benefits of a range of perspectives. Without diversity, it's so hard to avoid groupthink. Uh, last episode, we were talking about getting out of comfort zones. And part of that is risk appetite and evaluating risks. And diversity plays a vital role here too. Earlier this year, I was uh, lucky enough to hear Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank, speaking. You were there too, Ian. At the end of her talk, she took a question about diversity and female leaders in organisations. And Lagarde said, we need more women on boards. And as she talked, she made a really interesting point. She talked about research data clearly showing that companies that have a healthy mix of females and males on their board, and by the way, a healthy mix is half and half, companies that have that mix, and even those that are approaching that mix, take fewer bad risks. That's huge. A little before that, I was at an event where Lord Sebastian Coe, he was talking about leading the UK's bid and then hosting of the Olympics in 2012 and the organisation he put together. And Lord Coe, he put it super clearly. Diversity in any organisation is not a nice to have. It's essential. If you don't have it, you're an underperforming organisation. You're not as good as you could be. And I totally agree. So this is a much bigger point than peacetime CEO, wartime CEO. These are two alternative approaches. And we need both types of leader. But don't stop there. We need far more diversity than that. And it's essential. Mm. We need every type. Well, of one thing's for sure, and that is if you're on a leadership team for, you know, two, three, four, five up to 10 years, you're going to hit times where, as this uh, article shows, it's peacetime, quote unquote, and it's wartime, quote unquote. You know, that's going to happen over that period of time. As you say, some industries are going to get more of that because they're faster moving maybe and it's more wartime. But in any industry, you're going to have both. Therefore, you've got to either have that agility to go from one type of personality to another uh, which I think we can all do to some extent. But then I think what really complements that beautifully is people more at the extreme of those areas we'd have to challenge ourselves to move into <clears throat> who are permanently on our leadership teams. And that comes back to, as you say, <clears throat> setting them up with this diversity. Yes, and I think it's an essential piece of thinking to always be looking at, asking, what's our situation right now? Who do I need to be as a leader? Who is around me? What choices do we have? Are we consciously choosing our approach? I suppose the ultimate, the ultimate wartime CEO that just went through my head, of course, would be Churchill, wouldn't it? And and of course, of course, it's dangerous to start talking in those terms because those were absolutely extreme terms. And everyone's always said, you know, what would what would have happened to the Second World War had Churchill not been the Prime Minister? It would have had a different outcome. But I think when we're going back to organisations and SMEs, it can be a little bit forced to talk about peacetime versus wartime. Um, it's not quite that. Um, but But there are more challenging and less challenging times, that's for sure. I agree. And a couple of days ago, 
few days ago was the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. And of course, by the time that happened, Churchill was no longer Prime Minister. So I'm not sure we're we're drawing a, a conclusion uh, here. I think what the article's done is it's created a great discussion, which is what it intended to do. It's provoked us to look at what could wartime and peacetime really be? Do these really exist? What kind of people do we need? And I think we all need as leaders to understand we can't be one kind of leader. We need to be able to come into a situation and stretch ourselves and be a different type of leader. I think it's laziness to say, this is the kind of leader I am and I'm always going to be that kind of leader. But at the same time, we need to put people around us in our leadership teams that will really complement our, our default position, our natural stance. So if we're more of a peacetime CEO, I think we need people who are more used to being a wartime CEO who will challenge it a bit more. And if we're, if we're vice versa, if we're more of a wartime CEO, we probably need people who are a bit more stable around us. So I think it's creating that diversity that you've spoken about will give us the best chance of being successful and you know while you're talking there i i i I arrived somewhere else with this which is you know we've not really dug into either today or in any of our episodes up to now so we'll have to get to it not dug into strategy and there's a big strategy question here as well peacetime ceo aims to expand the market wartime ceo aims to win the market those are two mm. fundamentally different mm. strategies. Absolutely, are they are, aren't they? And uh, you know, there's a lot of lot of stuff that, that that sits here, but isn't really addressed like that. But I think you're right. We ought to get into strategy. It would be a great a great one for a future topic. Then, and on that point, our next episode is under pressure or naked ambition, when we'll look at different ways of driving and stretching a company. And both you and I are recording episodes with guests as well which i'm looking forward to so thanks ian this has been fun and challenging see you here again soon cheers bye thank you for listening to this episode of the gritty leaders club if you'd like to hear more please subscribe and join the club if you'd like to ask a question or offer an opinion or suggest a guest please get in touch with Ben at benwales.com or Ian at ianwindle.com. We'd love you to join the club and tell us what you think.